You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. Then I brought back these vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Thus I cleansed from them everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times, and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Well, you'll hear that there's many stories. They start with, they they end with, and they lived happily ever after. Now, I don't know if you were listening to that Bible reading that we just had. I don't know if you have Nehemiah 13 in front of you right now, but uh, I think Nehemiah 13, if you were to sum it up, it would be, and they lived happily ever after, not. They lived happily ever after, not. Things were looking so good, weren't they? The walls got done, the temple was done, they had a massive praise party, they ate some meat, they were having a great time together, and then Nehemiah, he heads away and he comes back, and what does he find? They stuffed it. Do you ever feel as if uh, sometimes you make commitments or promises towards a better life with God, yet you never get anywhere with them? Well, that is the experience of the people of God in this closing chapter of Nehemiah. That is the experience Nehemiah sought. uh, He sought to lead people in commitments and changes, but yet they didn't get anywhere. I wonder if you feel a tension between your desire for God, yet a difficulty to follow through with that desire. I'm just going to put myself out there and just be like, 
I do. I do. Uh, if you have forgotten uh, what's been happening so far in the book of Nehemiah, it's, it's kind of been on a bit of a cycle. Uh, Josh put it well last week. He said the people, it's a story of the people's commitment and then their failure and then the consequence and then their recommitment. <laughs> commitment, yeah. And then failure, oh no. And then the consequence, oh no. But then their recommitment. That's what's happening on the people's side. And on God's side, God is going, I love mercy and grace. My love, mercy, and grace. My love, mercy, and grace. And my love, mercy, and grace. Now, last week, the last two weeks was all about what the people had been recommitting to, wasn't it? Our last two weeks was like, last week was the big praise moment, party, Lord's God's love, mercy, and grace to get us here. And the week before that was their big commitment moment, wasn't it? Do we remember what they committed themselves to, the people of God? It was four things. They committed themselves to obey God, to rest in God, to maintain purity as God's people and to contribute to this system that was going to help them do those things. There was obey, follow God's lead. There was rest, which was keeping the Sabbath day, the fourth of the Ten Commandments. There was the maintain purity, so keep the value of the family for generations to come, maintain that purity and then contribute, contribute to the temple and its work and its priests so that this system can promote these things that we're committing to. That's the commitment that they made. They'd had a big party to celebrate this fresh, new, good news, restart, beginning. And then today is our last chapter. There's a bit of a time gap. What's happened is, if you remember Nehemiah, the cupbearer, he got permission from the king, didn't he, to go over and help the people with this job of building the walls. And so he's kind of like, well, I've done the job. I better go back to my boss and just be like, hey, thanks for letting me go and for all the cash that you sent me with. And now he's, um, he's got, another, he's got, some, got some, another uh, opportunity to go back and to see how it's all gone. And we've got this chapter 13, which is like his memoirs written in the first person. And he now returns and what does he find? What does he find? How has that commitment gone? Obey, rest, maintain purity, contribute. How's it played out? Not much commitment to the recommitment. Obedience to the law and the contribution to the needs of the people. Nehemiah records it for us. After some time, I asked leave of the king, verse 7, and came to Jerusalem. And then discovered, what did he discover? What did he discover? Everything was going so well. The system works. The people are flourishing. God is blessing them. Uh-uh. I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And Nehemiah, it says, he was very angry. Okay, so what's happened? The temple, Instead of the storerooms being a place to store the gifts to offer to God and to support the spiritual health of the people, what's happened? The temple's become like a shipping container for the storage of a small side hustle for one of its vendors. So Nehemiah's like, okay, memoir. So I threw the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber and I gave the orders and they cleansed the chambers. Okay. So their commitment to keep the law and their commitment to contribute, okay, not so good. All right, what else? How have they gone with keeping the Sabbath rest? All right, surely these guys are going to enjoy God's ordained day off. You know, the one that he set up in creation on the seventh day, he rested, keep doing that. Well, let's have a look. Verse 15, in those days, I saw in Judah people who were treading the wine press on the Sabbath. Okay, that means they're making wine on the Sabbath, treading the wine press and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them onto donkeys. That sounds like work. Heaps of grain and loading it onto donkeys. And also wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads, which were being brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Nehemiah's like, this isn't logical. You're doing logistics on the Sabbath. Like the Sabbath day, the people have got to be like, well, we've got a great opportunity for a side hustle here. Got a bit of spare time, extra opportunity to make some extra cash, enjoy some trade. But that's what they're doing. But worst of all, they're not using the Sabbath to praise and remember the Lord their God who has given them this 
rich, abundant blessing. Instead of taking this good gift to lean into God, they're now using it to just arrogantly do their own thing. So what does Nehemiah do? Verse 15, I warned them on the day when they sold food. Verse 17, I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, so he's going to go to the bosses. He's like, okay, guys, you're in charge. What's going on? What is this evil thing that you are doing? Profaning the Sabbath day. Okay, listen to this. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Guys, do you remember what happened last time? Do you remember what happened the time before that? Do you remember what happened the time before that? It's like, you're doing it again. Like, what's Now you are bringing more wrath on the people of Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah, if you wanted to sum this part up, he's basically like, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is what got you in trouble in the first place. All right, law. So obeying the law, Sabbath, contributing to the temple. All right, surely maybe they've done, they've kept one of the four commitments, purity of the people. How's that going? All right, verse 23. In those days, I also saw the Jews had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab, and half their children, half their children had spoken the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. When you're fluent in the language and in the culture that is the other team, and your kids don't even understand your very own family history, I'm just going to say, I think Nehemiah recognized this. That's a pretty good sign. You've screwed up the intergenerational purity of God's people. Side note, here's one of the reasons why we spend one week a month doing intergenerational services. And this is why I call us all to be participants in that, because we need to invest in our kids. Because as soon as you lose it in one generation, drift for the next. And so they've screwed that up. So what does Nehemiah do? This is perhaps one of the most fun verses in the Bible. Verse 25, and I confronted them. All right, confronted them. And I cursed them. <laughs> okay, Nehemiah's getting angry. He's getting real angry. And I beat some of them. It's like Nehemiah, cupbearer. He beat, remember, Ninja Maya? He beat some of them. Like this is a guy that works as a bodyguard for like the king in Persia. This guy knows how to fight. And now he's like laying down the law. Well, different type of law now. I beat some of them. And this is like, well, this is like Ninja Maya. Now it's just like, okay, Nehemiah, this is a low blow. And pulled out their hair and pulled out their head. Okay, this is not, this do not, this is why context is so important, right? These are not good things for us to do. Like we're just getting a sense of how Nehemiah feels. Just because this is in the Bible doesn't mean this is how we like parent or something, okay? Just, Nehemiah is obviously angry. And he says, I made them take an oath in the name of the God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons and for yourselves. Needless to say, Nehemiah is a little upset. You might sum up Nehemiah's reaction as a rampaging reform. And we see here at the end of this book, Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah ends it all with his hands thrown up in the air and this defeated expression towards God. And he says, I cleansed, I established, I provided. It's a depressed, despondent words and the book closes with him saying, remember me for my good. Basically, what more could have I done? These people suck. I did my best. End scene. And they all lived happily ever after. Not. It seems that the people of God got distracted from what they decided to be devoted to. They had made commitments towards a better life, a God-centered life, an honorable life, an abundant life, but they didn't get anywhere, did they? They didn't get anywhere. Now it's worth asking, how do you feel 
when you repeatedly self-corrupt and screw up your own commitments towards God. That's what I was thinking about this week. Or maybe you're thinking of someone else. I would encourage you to start with you. But there's a real tension here as well. You can sort of put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes. How do you feel when someone that you care for makes commitments for a better life but just never carries through? Have you ever wanted to go on a reformation rampage in your own life or in someone else's? You know, punch a wall, pull out someone's hair. Hopefully not. That's, that, that would not make that clear now. Don't do that. Is the answer to get angry and confronted to change and make real commitment? Is what Nehemiah, in the way that he ended up feeling, is, look, what he did, is, is Nehemiah's response the right one? Well, it's good. It's important to actually ask that question because we actually can get a little bit of an insight into the effect that Nehemiah's rampaging reform had. And you know what? I actually think Nehemiah would have been a little bit surprised the effect of his reforming rampage. You see, at the, end, the last chapter of Nehemiah, it's actually the last chapter of the Old Testament chronologically. Like it's the last thing to happen in the, in, the, in the history of God's people that we know in the Old Testament until we get to Jesus. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we've got what's called this intertestamental period, about four to 500 years. And we kind of get an idea of the effect of Nehemiah's raging reform by where we see see God's people pick up when we get to the New Testament. And it's really interesting because the pendulum actually swings. You see, the angry outburst towards the people of God, it made them actually see some sort of movement from once being relaxed with their commitment to now being actually quite intense with their commitment. You see, the next four to 500 years is a story of Pharisees, scribes, zealots, Sadducees, many religious expressions of God's people, many of whom went actually really hard after the law of God and after these commitments. The change was intense. There was a keeping of the law and a keeping of the commitments that actually got taught to the people that had to be at the same level as the priests. And the Pharisees would be teaching, they'd be putting up extra extra walls and extra guards and extra rules so that the people would keep the law for sure. I mean, I imagine Nehemiah's, uh, you know, uh, what he did has had a bit of a lasting you know, effect. It's like, Daddy, why are you bald? Oh, well, your granddad, he lost all of his hair when he met Nehemiah after his little interlude. So, son, that is why we are definitely going to church this week. No questions asked. And it's really interesting because this pendulum swing and it kind of works. The ways of the people had kind of changed. But it's really important for us to see Just because they've changed their ways doesn't mean that right actions had meant a change of heart. No. So they had the right actions now, 500 years later, but the people of God now had the wrong motive. See, God God allows for this swinging of the pendulum four to 500 years, and what happens? He allows it to go on and... Does this, he allows the people to sort of see the result of this pendulum swing. And, we got, and, he, and it's for them to ask, does this dramatic response lead to godly devotion? Is there God's blessing from their new obsession with the commitments? Like, is there now God's blessing? They're kind of, the, you know, on the report to the board, it looks really good, right? Oh, yes, well, we've been keeping Sabbath. It's been very good. Yes, been tithing. You know, we've even been tithing our herbs this week. Tied my cumin and my milk, mint and my dill. Uh, yeah, so keeping that one, good on us. But is, is this confrontive, aggressive legalism? Is that the way forward for God's people? No, not on the other side of the pendulum. You see, 
This, there's a series of events and you don't have to be a genius to conclude that the people of God aren't exactly being blessed from God in this intertestamental period. You see, there's Roman occupation. That's not cool, okay? Roman occupation. You know, these guys coming in and just like taking over and be like, we are your bosses now or you die, you know? It's like, okay, just, thanks boss, you know? There's taxation. There is religious politicalization. And there's mass division. So we get to this point and I go, all right, there's like a relaxed view of these commitments. Don't do it and get your hair pulled out. And then there's the other end, which is like, just do it blindly and empty headedly, but you're sort of doing it and kind of do it. And on the outside, it looks good, but actually the heart is in the wrong place. I look at this and I go, like, what hope do we have? What hope do we have? Like, seriously, it's like, we get both extremes to committing towards godly living. Like there's the relaxed approach and the aggressive approach and they both fail. I mean, I kind of see, you know, there's, there's a, oh, I'm not gonna say that, throw that one out. But what we see here, like this is why we ask the question in our gospel communities. That's why that second question is really important. What does this teach us about the, the state of the human heart? We're a disaster. On our own, we can't commit to doing anything for God. In our flesh, when we try and do everything we can, we either end up doing nothing or we end up just becoming this like religious jerk that actually you're not doing anything at all except making other people feel like, oh, you're a Christian. You know, let's just, it, we suck. So I feel like God has given us this ending of Nehemiah and this intertestamental period. Sorry, I left my tongue at home. And he's given us enough time for us to see how weak we are on our own to keep a promise and make a commitment to God. And then also how bad it is to enforce blind, heartless, pseudo honoring of God's ways. You see, what, is this, what we establish here is live for God on your own, you can't. Live for God, clean yourself up, be righteous, be good enough on your own, you can't. That's what we're learning here from God's word. And so then we see what happens next in the narrative. And this is the preacher's favorite part when it works like this, especially chronologically in the story of redemption. Herein, literally enter in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, God in flesh, he comes and he teaches and he shows the way of what beautiful commitment to God really looks like, doesn't he? Jesus comes and he shows the way and he gives the fresh start that people need so that they also can keep their commitments to God, doesn't he? Jesus comes and he also provides the power and the strength to keep those commitments to God, doesn't he? Enter in Jesus Christ. Jesus makes the way. He provides the way. He shows the way. You see, on our own, living for the glory of God, we can't. Look at the perfect life, of Jesus, the abundant life, the joy-filled life, the rested life, the peaceful life, the life of light that is Jesus Christ. And we go, what well, he did. He did. He did what we can't. Who is this guy? You know what Jesus does? He invites people to go his way. Did we hear how Esther opened our service this morning with a reading from Matthew's gospel? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. 
Jesus Christ leads. Jesus Christ loves. He loves you in this way. He's not pulling out people's hair. He's not laying down a physical beat down to be like, come on, guys, come with me or else you're going to go to hell. It's like, no, it's just like Jesus. He's gentle and lowly. Jesus Christ, God's chosen one, he is gentle, he's kind, he's patient, but he's not pushy. That's awesome. Prince of peace. But at the same time, he's no pushover. He is the king of power, isn't he? We see Jesus, he confronts those that are very lax and relaxed in their commitments, but he's also willing to speak to those that are empty and hollow and legalistic in their commitments, isn't he? You know those scenes where he talks to the Pharisees? You brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. Man, I wish I was standing on the sidelines to see that. It probably would have been at me though. Um, so I've got to be careful. But Jesus comes and he shows that he is the way, the truth and the life that no one comes to the Father except through him. And Jesus comes and he makes a connection from this outwardly God-pleasing action, which is good, to the deep-rooted motivation of the heart, which is right. And you see where Nehemiah ends in chapter 13 with his defeated, exasperated exclamation of, I cleansed, I established, I provided, remember me for my good. See, Jesus, he comes and he makes a triumphant declaration, a powerful proclamation. And he says, I cleansed, I established, and I provided. Turn to me because of this good. Live a new way that is good. The motivation that Jesus gives to live this new way is beautiful. See, Jesus calls his people to the same pattern that God had already been showing in the New Testament, hadn't he? You know, it is people are to obey from the loving acceptance that they had from God. We see this in the book of Exodus. He saves them, draws them out and then gives them the law to live. We see that we saw this in Nehemiah, the second Exodus. They're brought out of Babylon and God is like, great, I'm going to give you the people to lead you. There's rescue and then there's the leadership in going forward. And Jesus, he goes next level though, doesn't he? Crazy love. His life and his death, at the great cost of his own life and his death, he rescues. Like, do you need any more evidence that God is for you? Like, do you, do you need any more proof that God wants you? What more evidence is there then for God so loved the world, God so loved the surf coast, God so loved you that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Do you need any more evidence than that? That cultivates a motivation to live from the acceptance that we have in Christ. It's no longer this blind legalism of God, I've got to do enough to earn it. Nah. Just like Nehemiah, God in and through Jesus, he cleanses, he establishes and he provides, but so much better. You see, Jesus cleanses. What does he cleanse us from? He cleanses, he cleanses us from our sin so that we can see, be seen by God as saints and not by sinners. He cleanses us, He washes us, He makes us new. And Jesus establishes, doesn't He? You know, Nehemiah, Ezra, they established new temple, a new way. Jesus establishes a new way in following Him. He declares us right before God and then He establishes a way to live in. Come, follow me. So He says to the disciples, come and follow me. Die to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. And Jesus provides, Jesus provides the power for this way. Okay. And this is beautiful. He provides for all people that put their confidence in Jesus's power to rescue and save them, not in our own merit, but what he has done. For those of us who put their confidence in Jesus for their eternal life, he gives us the power to live in this temporary life, doesn't he? He gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit. 
He gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit, a down payment, a stamp and a seal of approval of like, you're mine. That's right. You're mine. Nothing else getting in there now. Holy Spirit changing you from the inside out. I mean, I've said this before. It's like, can, can a genuine Christian like have demonic oppression from within their soul? Nope. According to the words of Noah Belusov, there's no room in there. Holy Spirit taken over that house. He gives you the power of the Holy Spirit, not only as a down payment, not only to be like, we're going to start the renovation, but the power to live in the way that Jesus taught. The gift of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 23, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Okay, and we kind of go at that point, it's just like, whoa, now, I've seen how the keeping of the word part goes in the history of God's people. And I know my own flesh. That's pretty tough, Jesus. And Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And he will, we, will, we will come to him. We will come to him and make our home with him. And the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he will bring remembrance all that I've said to you. How cool is that? Every time you open your Bible to make a spiritual deposit into your heart, that's, a, that's like the Holy Spirit's just like, yeah, that's right. See these guys absorbing the word of the living God. That's right. They will not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then when they're in that tight spot this week, when they're feeling down, when they're feeling angry, when they're feeling depressed, it's just like, I will bring to mind God's word that will give them life. They'll give them away. It's like, I'm, I'm here to work with you. Jesus gives the better way. On our own, we can't. But we look at Jesus and he did. So if we are with Jesus and in Jesus and trust in Jesus and are walking with Jesus, guess what? We can. We can commit to living a life with God. There is a new confidence in being able to make a commitment to follow God because in Christ, God is with you. Do you know that? Have you responded to that? Is your life been one of making efforts to live for God? You know, perhaps you feel like they've not been working. Maybe that's because you've been like those in Nehemiah's time, just doing it in your own strength. It's not how it's supposed to be. No one is going to stand before the throne of God and, and be like, God will be like, okay, so why do I let you in? Why do we get relationship? No one is going to be able to say, well, God, I, I did enough. Worked real hard. If that's your answer, God's like, yeah, that's, that's not enough. Be holy as I'm holy. But in Christ, you go up there with him by your side, the advocate to the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We stand there. And God goes, all right, so why do we get relationship forever and eternity? What's, the, what's going on? And Jesus steps forward and he says, well, he's with me. You know? And then there's part of our heart that's just like, yeah, but I did a lot of bad stuff. He's still going to let me in. And Jesus is like, no, 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 don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. I've already paid the price for that. And in the words of preacher H.B. Charles Jr., you can't condemn him for his sin because that would be double jeopardy. I've already paid the price for his sin on the cross. So he is pure, he is with me. We go in together, thank you very much. Not in his strength, but in what I have accomplished. He is with me, she is with me, they are with me. Are you following the way of Jesus? Is it by his energy that he is powerfully at work within you that you are able to live up to what you have already attained in Christ. You can't do it in your own flesh. You can't do it in your own strength. You've got to depend on God and on Christ and in the gift of His Holy Spirit. And if you don't know if you have that, ask for it. If you feel like you need forgiveness, ask for it. God, remember what we thought about two weeks ago? The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness, forgiving, transgression, iniquity, and sin. 
you can ask for forgiveness. You can make your appeal to him for a clean conscience based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. You can't do it in your own flesh. Paul writes about this to the Galatian church. They got, they got really hung up about some flesh. Man, like big time. <laughs> Paul says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law, by like doing certain things in your own effort or by hearing with faith, believing in faith? Are you so foolish? Like he's writing to the church. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, like if Jesus is who initially saves you, how do you, like how are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's just like, if you think that you're going to start the race with the, like with the spirit's help, you couldn't start on your own. Like now that you're running and in the midst of it, how on earth do you think you could keep running in your own? You've got to keep coming back to the Holy Spirit. You've got to keep coming back to like your faith in Christ. You're only going to get so far in your own strength. I want us to have confidence that we can ask God for help. I want you all to have confidence that you can draw near to God and He will draw near to you. So even Jesus talks about this, talks about prayer, talks about fathers and, and requests. Luke 12, you then, <laughs> you who are evil, <laughs> thanks Jesus, know, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father Give, to the whole, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. There's a promise from God. Man, how often I forget that. How often do I need to be reminded of that? How often do we need to be reminding each other of that? I'm going to say it very often. I don't know, maybe I'll just interject into your conversation and just say very often. You see, if your heart is in the right place, if it's, if it's to commit to honouring God and if it's committing to getting to know Him and if, it, if you're doing that because you are so captivated with the love that He has shown to you in Jesus Christ, His Son and the forgiveness that you have received and the fresh start that you now get to walk in, ask Him to help you live in that commitment and He will bless you. He will give you the grace you need for the goal of intimacy you desire. There's beautiful promises here from the one true God. So, I hope for this week you've got some energy to live in the power that God gives. As we close, I want to talk about one aspect of this life, of this Jesus life, of the Jesus way, the better way, the abundant way, I want us to consider one of these commitments that the people of God made and that Nehemiah was upset that they didn't keep. I want us to consider one of these commitments because they're commitments that Jesus models and teaches to us so we know that they're good. I want us to model one of these commitments. I want us to talk about one of these commitments because I think it is... Um, something that is for us that'll help us to keep considering these things and living out the way of Jesus in our life. I want us to consider the commitment of Sabbath, Sabbath rest. Now, one precursory thought or comment as to why I make this plea, um, some of you might already be thinking, look, it's not worth considering this idea of this Sabbath rest. Look, it's not in the culture in which we're living. You know, I know I've already heard that before, you know. But look, I need to say up front that when we're calling to live in the way of Jesus, in what he models and teaches to us, at the heart of any practice, even at the heart of this practice, it's the fundamental message of Jesus that he leads his ministry with, okay? The reason we do this is because Jesus starts off his ministry with the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, that's God's kingdom, Jesus' government, Christ's culture, a spirit-led lifestyle, if you will. It's all the same thing, but it's what Jesus calls us to live in. And if you're someone that has put your trust in Jesus for a new life, I hear that, amen. You know, that's a new life that starts now. And it's a new life that is not defined by your immediate environment and the culture that you're in now. 
It's a new life that's defined by the kingdom culture, the kingdom of God culture that Jesus says is now and is to come. God calls us to a different culture, a counterculture of following him. Now, a couple of examples that are just, just to help this land. Joash last week talked about how white dudes aren't good at singing in church, you know, because of the culture that we're in and because of just that sewer, you know, it's bloody God, I can't sing because I'm a dude. It's just like, shut up. If you're like a son of God, you are part of Christ's culture. God's men sing. Look at David. He's out on the front line and then he's writing poetry. And this is a guy after, this is a man after the Lord's own heart. Okay. So dudes, I want to encourage you to sing. I I didn't turn around and look at who was singing this morning because, you know, I don't want to make you feel guilty. But like free yourselves up for singing, like because you can do that. Like it's, it's what God calls his men to do. Jesus, he's, he's, he's a singer. You know, the, like the last thing that he does with his disciples before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to be crucified. They share the Lord's Supper and then it says, and they sung a hymn. Twelve dudes hanging out, just had some meat. And then it's just like, you know what? I remember Jesus being like, you know what? I reckon we should sing, guys. Yeah, let's praise God together. Let's sing. Now, guys, are we defined by what the culture says we should be like and men's health magazines and all of those things? Or are we defined by being men who follow after the light and the example and the goodness of Christ? I'm going to advocate for the latter. Well, here's another one. And this is dangerous to talk this way because I'm going to upset some people. But surf coast lifestyle, laissez-faire, I'm going to do it when it suits me. You know, the surf is good, so I'm not going to come. Christ calls his people to a community that is committed to him and to one another. And to shape our commitment to something as eternally significant as this by the fact that you own a house in, with a postcode of 3228, like that's, like, I'm sorry, like that's ridiculous. Like, I mean, I'm, ta- I'm preaching to converted, right? But if any of you are listening, if you've bothered to listen, watch the podcast, watch this thing afterwards and you're not here because you're like, oh, the waves are good. It's just like, no, you get here because Jesus says good for you. And I mean, I'm not going to pull out your beard but, or your hair, but I'm just saying it's kingdom culture. It's, a new, it's our new way of living. It's countercultural to what we're in. And when we're following the countercultural life of Jesus, like this is what we have to remember. Jesus is like, he's calling us to a life of joy and peace and light, isn't he? It's just like, we forget that. Sometimes we think, well, yes, Jesus has saved me, but actually I've got this way of living. It's kind of like Jesus is like, well, I just want you to have some, have some bad times. So, you know, we're kind of even, I did the cross thing. Can't you just have like an awkward life for a while? It's just, that's not what, that's not who Jesus is. That's not the love of God. It's like, I have come so that they may have life, life abundant. That's the teaching of Jesus. That's not prosperity gospel. That's just like when you start to live according to the, the design of your maker, it's just like, whoa, things are going really well. It's like, I have a deep, intimate connection with God and this is amazing. Who would have thought that submitting to the leading of Christ was actually going to be better than like conforming to this inconsistent, illogical, irrational culture of the area that I just so happen to live right now. The kingdom of God is eternal. You can be warming up for heaven now and we should be warming up for heaven now. Like you think of a basketball warm-up before a game. I love watching the basketball warm-ups or even the footy warm-up. Basketball's more fun because they do more tricky things, right? You know, they're getting there, they're there, they're together. You know, the coach is there and like psyching them up. You always want to hear what the coach is saying. That's kind of cool. And then you see the guys on the court, they're running through their plays. They're doing some cool moves. They're showing off a little bit. They're making connections. They're just getting a few mistakes out of the way. Now, I don't, know what, I don't know about you, but even just by watching the warm-up, I'm like, dude, I want to be a part of that. Like, whatever's going to happen with those guys looks fun and good. And like, it's getting them ready. And they're actually beginning to, they're beginning to participate and practice what they're going to be doing in a few moments. And that is like what living in the kingdom now is about. 
It, not only is it for us, our warm-up for eternity, but it is declarational to the community around us. They see us making the, making the decisions that we do and having the joy that we have. And they're kind of like, guys, what are you like warming up for? Can I play that game too? That looks kind of fun. That looks kind of good. You guys kind of have like a piece that transcends understanding. You kind of like know someone or something where there is in his presence, there's fullness of joy. What's all this about? Can I come along? Can I hear more? <laughs> Jesus calls us to a countercultural way of living, which is his culture which is his kingdom with him as the lead and with him as the example. Now, I don't know if any of that makes sense. So I found a quote, which will say it better than me. Dallas Willard writes, currently our Christian people generally do not think of themselves as people who obey Christ. Obeying Christ is not part of their religion. Believing Christ is part of their religion but it has been separated off from obedience to Christ. Jesus spoke about hearing and doing. He goes on to quote Luke 7, 48, whoever hears my words, this is Jesus, and puts them into practice is building their house on the rock. He goes on to quote John 14, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Kingdom of God living is now. It's a warm up for the life to come. And it's significant, not just for us, but also for those that aren't yet in the kingdom who will look on and want to join in. <clears throat> I really want to talk about Sabbath now, but I've just looked at my watch and it's 12.30 and I want to honor your time. I don't think it's right to do a vote. I'm going to honor your time this morning. It's 12.30. There's a lot that still needs to be said about living for God. Sabbath, let's just go to that. Let's just go to the end. Sabbath is a spiritual, is a Holy Spirit hack for your life. To slow down. I mean, some of you went and did that thing in COVID where you get the, the, the dirt water from the river and put a cap on it and then it settles and you're like, oh, look at all the dirt water and the clear water. Some of you did that. That is a picture of Sabbath. Setting something aside just to let the, part, the, the particles settle so then you can begin to have clarity. You know, if you need a really hard operation, what do you have to do to allow the surgeon to do his work? You need to stop and lie down. You need to stop and let the great physician do his work. Sabbath also is not an excuse for you to get out of serving. Oh, sorry, guys, just got some Sabbathing today. Yeah, <laughs> serving the Lord so I can't serve you. No, that's not what Sabbath is either. So this is quick, so I apologize for the more crass tone. Sabbath is diagnostic. If you're not prepared to do Sabbath and you ask yourself, why not? And if the reason for why not is because I need position or power or money or a certain something, then that effectively is your God. Sabbath is a discipline. I mean, if you can't be disciplined to stop, I mean, God isn't saying one of the spiritual disciplines is to run a hundred kilometers. He's like, here's one of the spiritual disciplines. Stop. Stop. Like just, just is like, stop. And I'm preaching to myself right now because you're all just like, Louis, it's 12.30. And Sabbath is a pathway and a highway towards delight. If you are married, how do you get to know your spouse? It's like, okay, sorry, too busy, just gonna keep working, just keep going. So it's just don't worry about me. Just, just. If you're rich, wanting to cultivate a rich relationship, Sorry, yeah, mate, I just oh, can't, no, no time for that. Got to work. Got some, got some grapes to press and some figs to sell. God wants you to slow down in, and he commands you to slow down. Like, take a break. Like, let's hang out. Enjoy the good gifts I've given you and lean into me. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. 
Sabbath involves us being vulnerable, doesn't it? Like Sabbath is not, like, you know, like picture this. I mean, I take Esther out for a nice meal. I'm, I'm at the restaurant and then I sit on my phone the whole time and just ignore her the whole time. It's like, what do you want to order? Yeah, awesome. Yeah, great. Yeah, great. We did the date. We've done, we've done, we've done the date thing. It's like, <laughs> same thing with God. If you're going to rest Sabbath and enjoy Him, enjoy Him. Don't just beach a church on the Sunday and then be on your phone and have a thoughtless experience. Sabbath is for our discipline. It's to diagnose our hearts and it's for our delight. <clears throat> so let's land this plane. There's more to say, but I won't. If you haven't responded to Jesus before, if you haven't responded to him as the only way to be known by God, today can be the day. You can pray and you can ask God for the fresh start, soul cleansing and Holy Spirit to lead and guide you in a new way of life in Christ's kingdom culture. And if you've never prayed that prayer, you can do that today. And if you want help, just come and see me afterwards. I'd love to pray that with you. And for those of you that would say that you are committed to God, that you do trust Jesus with your life, you've done that on the first day and you do that every day, you know, today is also another day for a fresh start. You can enjoy a new and deeper dependence on His grace. You can look to the leading of His Spirit's power so that you can live in the abundant kingdom lifestyle and warm up for eternity that others will see and want to join you in. So for those of you that have ever felt that you've made commitments towards a more disciplined life with God, a better life with God, but you've never got anywhere with them, let me encourage you <clears throat> to posture your heart before Him, to pray, ask for His Spirit, and to remember in your own flesh, you can't do anything. But Jesus did, and He calls us to walk with Him in the power of His Spirit. I'm going to pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.